Well, good morning, Peachtree. I'm Pastor Rich. It's good to see you. It's been a while. I hope that you've been having a blessed summer, a time of refreshing, and that we might be the kind of community that enjoys all the different rhythms of life. I've not only been on vacation, I've been on steady leave, and I've been working diligently on the messages for the coming year. And I am so excited for what is to come for us at Peachtree and you, a part of our online community and our Peachtree family are a special part of what God is doing in this part of the world. And so we're excited to get to share in that today. And you know, this is actually not the beginning of something, it's the ending of something. This is the end of our series called The Teacher's Twist. And over the summer months, we've been talking about these collections of stories of Jesus that he told in order to deliver a really impactful punch about what God is doing in the kingdom, in your life and in mine. And today we're not gonna look at a familiar story. This is a lesser known story of Jesus. And it has to do with the subject of excuses. Before I tell you Jesus's story, I wanna tell you Seth King's story. Here's a picture of him with his five kids. At the time of this photo, they were ages three to ages 15. And as a dad, he was finding with all these kids of all these different ages, he was writing a lot of excuse notes And in order to teach his kids some responsibility of the power of showing up and doing what you're supposed to do and being on time, he decided to lean into every moment that he had to write an excuse note as opposed to leaning away. Let me share with you some of these examples. Here's one that he wrote. Please excuse Nolan for being late. We both took children's melatonin gummies last night. We tried it because we heard it can be effective if children are having trouble sleeping. Turns out, melatonin is extremely effective on adults also. I dare say injecting myself directly in the neck with bear tranquilizer would be hard for us to have the same impact. Six out of five insomniacs agree. Melatonin will help you sleep. Hugs, Seth. Here's another excuse note. This one for Sophia. Please excuse Sophia for being late. I'm constantly behind on everything thanks to the do-it-yourself community and the fact that my wife now believes that it is possible to shiplap an entire home, refinish a piano, repaint an entire floor, and then have it all impeccably decorated within a single day, if not a few hours. After all, it only took 10 minutes to watch the IG story of a cosmetic overhaul of some fixer-upper. So 10 minutes is all it should take for me to do the same. Here I thought I was a dad. It turns out I'm also a do-it-yourself professional. Hugs and hallelujah, Seth. I love this one. This is a holiday one. Please excuse me for being late to, well, I'm sure something I'm forgetting. I'm caught in this terrible in-between holidays. I have no idea what day it is or what I should be doing because I don't have to go to the office this week, but I feel like I should and I'm kind of depressed or is it seasonal affective disorder and my kids want to have a party every day because they're out of school and I feel like I should have to entertain them like a sad clown and all these celebrities are dying and I need to make resolutions for the new year. But right now, the only thing I can think about is that it's noon and I should probably shower and get ready for the day kind of face. This is a confusing time for me, but I'm determined to have a good morning for Miss Debbie Reynolds. Hugs, Seth. 
And then there's this one that his kids did after Father's Day. Please excuse this note for not being handwritten. Our dad's hand and wrist are still sore from patting himself on the back all day long on Father's Day. Hugs the King children. Oh, all those different excuses. And I imagine you in your own art form are really good at making excuses. Excuses for being late, excuses for forgetting something, whatever it is. We have honed the art of the excuse. Now, what is an excuse? Let's look at this definition together. Why don't you say it with me, in fact. An excuse is a reason or even deception so that I'm not responsible or at fault. A reason or deception so that I don't have to be responsible or at fault. We are chronically giving excuses. And the story that Jesus is about to tell us today is a story about the inadequacy of even really good excuses. So we're going to be looking at a story that comes to us from Luke chapter 14. Eugene Peterson says that in the gospel of Luke, it seems that Jesus is either on his way to a party or on his way home from a party or he is at a party. And in Luke chapter 14 in particular, all the imagery centers around this. It centers around the table, a feast, a meal, a celebration. In fact, what happens in the first story in Luke chapter 14, it's a story about not taking the seat of honor. And then the second story in Luke chapter 14, it's all about not showing favoritism at the party. And then the story that we're about to see today is its third festival or feast or table story. And the story that he tells is about not making excuses. Let's look at this story of Jesus together. When one of those at table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I just got married. I can't come. And the servant came back and reported this to his master. And the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads, the country lanes, and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those servants who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. It was right before the Christmas season Several years ago, when Kelly and I were in Texas, we were pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio, and we had invited uh, many of the elders, leaders of the church to come over to our house. Their spouses were invited as well. So we were expecting and hosting about 50 people that night in our home. Our house was going to be crammed to the gills. 
And so we got everything ready. All the preparations were done. The Christmas music was on. The decorations were on the tree and around the fireplace mantle. And the food, drink, everything was prepared. And the hour of the party arrived. Kelly and I had this moment where everything was ready. And so we sat down on a couch in our living room that we don't normally sit down in. We sat, we held hands together. We took a deep breath and we said, wow, after all that work, it is so nice just to have a few moments before the guests actually arrive. Well, five minutes went by and that was a nice little break. After 15 minutes, we were like, wow, everybody is kind of fashionably late tonight. About 30 minutes went by and we started to get concerned. This was before the days of the smartphone, and so it wasn't easy for me to glean the information that I needed. But it turned out that um, somehow there had been a miscommunication, and the time that had gotten put down on my calendar was an hour earlier than the time that had been communicated for the guests to actually come. And so for the better part of an hour, I thought that we had invited everybody, that they had said yes, and that nobody was coming. And I got a little tiny glimpse of how the master of the banquet, the wealthy man, must have felt in Jesus' story. Imagine that you put in all of this work, all of this time, all of this energy, and people don't even show up. And when you look at the story carefully, these are all people who said that they were going to show up, but they never did when the moment actually arrived. That the wealthy man sends out a courier to say, it's now the time, the party that you said that you were gonna come to, it's happening now. And excuse after excuse after excuse, they say that they're not coming. Did you notice even the kindness and the good manners of what they said? Did you notice that they were really good in verses 18 and 19 and 20? Please excuse me, please excuse me. Oh, I'm so sorry, I can't come. And when we look back at this story, we get a little bit confused because we think these are some old agrarian farming kind of excuses, and they kind of look like lame excuses to us. Now, what's interesting is contextually, if you would have been living in that day and age and in that society, these would not have been inconsequential excuses. These would have been significant excuses. Not only was there a lot at stake with these excuses, they are rooted in the Jewish tradition of something that happened a long time ago. Jesus knew his Jewish audience really well. And there was a significant moment when God's people were entering into the promised land where they were talking about rationalizations, excuses, reasons that somebody didn't have to go to war. I know this is a little bit of backstory, but bear with me and let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 20. This is Moses speaking. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt will be with you. And then a few verses later, the officer shall say to the army, has anyone built a new house and not begun to live in it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may begin to live in it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. 
Moses is providing three asterisks, three kind of caveats, three excuses of home, of work, and of family as reasons that they don't have to fight, that they don't have to go off to war. Now, what is often war in the Old Testament is often a banquet in the New Testament. And what we discover in the great feast of what God is doing when he is inviting us to participate with him, with what he is doing in the kingdom of God, what we come to discover is that the most common excuses for not participating are our possessions, our profession, and our relationships. Let me give you one example of that. You know, it's interesting, you know, there's a great deal of overlap between family and faith, and that's a very natural overlap. But one of the interesting things that's happening is that in many people's worlds, their family is more important to them than their faith is. You know, this goes all the way back to the near sacrifice of Isaac, where, you know, where Abraham has to discover, is Isaac more important to him than God is? And what we discover that for many families, when push comes to shove, their family is more important to them than their relationship with God. In fact, the Barna research shows this. It shows that 7 out of 10, or 70% of Americans, say that their family is more important to them than God. This is a remarkable thing to say. You're supposed to love your family. Of course you are. But we are supposed to love our family in proportion to our love for God, out of the overflow of our love of God. In fact, some of the most controversial things that Jesus says are things like, anyone who wants to follow me must hate their mother and father and brother and sister. And, and we're always puzzled by those kinds of sayings of Jesus because we're like, is Jesus anti-family? No, what Jesus is saying is that nothing comes before our love and our obedience to Almighty God. As a pastor, you need to know when I see people get the invitation to follow Christ, to be a part of his family in a church, to grow spiritually, whatever it is, the most common reasons that people tell me is that usually that they're too busy because of their possessions, because of their profession, or because of their family. I got to tell you, those are good excuses, but it doesn't matter how good your excuse is. What Jesus is saying is that there's no loophole in this invitation to the feast with God. I love how John Wooden, the old UCLA coach and devout Christian put it. He said this, never make excuses. Your friends don't need them and your foes won't believe them. We spend a lot of time and a lot of energy working on our excuses. Now, one of the kind of unsettling parts for me with this story of Jesus is that when the wealthy banquet holder, when he actually finds out that the guests that he's invited who have said yes but don't show up aren't coming, he gets angry. You and I naturally get uncomfortable with this image, this understanding of of God's anger, but I want you to see what God does with his anger. I don't know about you, but when I get angry, usually bad things come as a result of that anger. The anger of the Lord turns rejection 
into redemption. And so the banquet holder in Jesus's story reaches out further, becomes more compassionate, more merciful, extending his grace to more and more people, even with the sting of rejection. You need to know that Jesus is telling us that he wants his house to be full and that the good news of the gospel of the story is that one little phrase that says, but there's still room, but there's still room, but there's still room. There's a story of a family that has grown up in Traverse City, Michigan, and they grow up on a farm that looks like this, these beautiful cherry blossom trees. The girl that's a teenager in this family doesn't like the restrictions of her family. She finds the rules to be too confining. And as she gets into her adolescence, she starts to really not just push back, but become angry. And in her mind, she concocts an option of running away. After one particular blow up, she does just that. She hops on a bus and she goes to Detroit, Michigan. At first, she kind of gets connected with a group of people and kind of gets sucked into this party culture. And as she starts to kind of experience the realm of drugs and alcohol, she firmly believes that her parents didn't know what the good life really was. A party culture turned for her into an addiction. And in order to support her addiction, she turned to turning tricks. She began to get sucked into the darkness of what is a horrible shadow side of many of our cities. And as she was being trafficked and as she was going from place to place, she became more and more depressed, more and more ashamed more and more aware of her brokenness and how far she was from where she really wanted to be. She knew that she had made a terrible mistake, but she didn't know how to get out of it. One day while she was in Detroit, she saw a lone cherry blossom tree. And she remembered in seeing that tree, what her family's house was like. She even thought that her golden retriever ate better than she does now. And so in the midst of her poverty, with nothing to give, she placed a phone call from a payphone. Her home didn't answer. She left a message. And she said that she was going to be arriving on a bus at this time near midnight. It was going to be heading north. And if there was somebody there to pick her up, she would get off and they would try to start over. But if somebody wasn't there, she understood and she'd just keep going to Canada so she could try to start a new life there. She didn't know what to expect as she took that long seven hour with all the stops bus ride from Detroit to Traverse City. Fifteen minutes, the bus driver announced. Fifteen minute break here. She had no idea what to expect, but she never could have anticipated what she saw. When she got to the bus terminal, she saw family members and friends 
They had party hats on. There was a big banner that just said, welcome home. Her father stepped forward out of the crowd of the people who had gathered. Tears were welling up in his eyes as were hers. She began to give her her speech about how sorry she was. And her father said, quiet with the excuses. There's a party for you at home. She looked down at her tobacco-stained fingers. She thought about her past. But her father's embrace washed all of that away. If that story sounds like a modern version of something that is very ancient and familiar to you, that's because it is. It's an echo of this story, the return of the prodigal son, the embrace of the father. You see, one of the things that's important to understand when we read the Bible is that we don't just read each of these stories in isolation. We realize that they're a part of a larger story that God's telling. And the story that Jesus tells towards the end of Luke chapter 14 is the last story that Jesus will tell before he tells the significant story of the prodigal son. Rejection becomes redemption. There's still room. I want my house to be full. God is opening his arms wide, even in the midst of the anger and the loss of all of our excuses. He still embraces us. Philip Yancey, in the retelling of that story, says this. We're accustomed to finding a catch in every promise. But Jesus' stories of scandalous forgiveness and extravagant grace include no catch, no loophole for disqualifying us from God's love. Each has at its core an ending too good to be true or so good that it must be true. What do you need to hear today? I imagine in some form or fashion, you've gotten really good at excuses. Excuses at work, school, with your family. Excuses of sharing the rationalizations of being able to say, this is not my fault, or I shouldn't be responsible for this. You know what, those excuses, no matter how good they are, pale in comparison to the invitation of what God has given to us. And what he says is, Don't make excuses. Say yes. Be there. This invitation that God has for you is that there is still room. And you might be saying, you don't know what I've done. The answer is there's still room. You might be saying to yourself, you don't know where I've been. There's still room. You might be saying, you don't know how inadequate I am. There's still room. You might be thinking that it can't possibly apply to me. There's still room. There's still room. There's still room. And so you don't need to do what the King family did. You don't need to have a carefully penned excuse for every little occasion, for everything that's gone wrong. You don't need excuses. You don't need rationalizations. You don't need justifications. Forgiveness and grace are already available to you and to me. What you need 
is to show up at the celebration. What was a battle in the Old Testament is often a feast in the New Testament. God is laying a table in the world today and he's inviting us to sit down, to celebrate, to join him in this great feast because of all that he has done. You and I have a lot of excuses. God has even more grace. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that your rejection is not something that lends itself to even greater cycles of anger and blame, but opens the door of forgiveness and grace even wider. Lord, please forgive us for our excuses. Even the good things like family that we use to kind of prop up our lives instead of heeding the call of what it means to follow you. Lord, you're out at work in the world and you invite us each and every day to be a part of the feast, the celebration of your good news. And we fill our lives with our professions and our possessions and our families and we turn those good things into ultimate things. Father, the Old Testament understanding of that is idolatry. Help us to put you first, that there's nothing that comes before our love of you. Thank you, God, for stories like this that remind us of the extent of your grace. And I pray right now for anybody who needs to hear your invitation. For somebody, whether for the first time or whether they've wandered away and are now finding their way back home, for the person to hear the echo of the desire that you have for your house to be full and that there is still room for me. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.